Poland. Uh, things that come to mind. Not a whole lot, no. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. <laughs> Pierogies? Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're gonna try to show you. Hello, I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 29th episode of Polcast. In this episode we will tell you what it's like to live with a Pole, a foreigner's take on Poles. Part one of our new series. The Polish alphabet. What are all these weird looking letters? that you can and should become a gatherer, a Polish-Canadian's interest in and books about mushrooms and edible plants. Smacznego! We're here talking today about Chwikwa, a beet garnish, and our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter, and my name is Laura. And we wrote two heritage Polish cookbooks called Classic Polish Recipes and Classic Polish Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations. But updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or glass of that. Did you know that beets are the newest superfood? They contain plenty of minerals and nutrients to make us healthier and to help stave off nasty diseases. And as a big bonus, they also taste great. Beets have always been a mainstay of Polish cuisine. And yeah, we've met plenty of folks who turn up their noses at the thought of eating beets, but many also admitted that they've never tried a fresh roasted beet or only tried a sample of pickle beets out of the can. Not so young. When serving a feast with ham, kielbasa, maybe some roast pork, we usually make a classic, truly unique Polish garnish that amazes everyone who tastes it. It takes just a minute to prepare and adds this gorgeous red splash of color next to anything on your plate that you'd like to enhance with a little extra kick. You can roast fresh beets for this recipe or just grab two cans of red beets, drained and coarsely chopped, but be sure they're not the pickled kind. Five ounces of prepared horseradish and a teaspoon of sugar. So hey, this is really easy. Five parts beets, one part horseradish, and a bit of sugar. Mix all the ingredients well, put them in a tightly sealed jar, and refrigerate overnight. Now I like a bigger kick, so when Laura's not looking, I'll add some more horseradish on the second day. When you're ready to eat, spoon out a dollop on your plate next to the ham or kielbasa. It's a big Polish party in your mouth. This chvikwa is out of our classic recipes book. For more information about our heritage books, please check out our website, www.polishclassiccooking.com. And you know they make great Christmas gifts. Smacznego! You cannot say you know a country without getting to know and trying to understand its people. When you come to visit for a few days, you meet mostly waiters, guides, and hotel staff. But when you live with a Paul, your observations and conclusions are really enlightening. 
for us, poles, invaluable in deepening our self-awareness. For non-poles, useful in dealing with poles as your friends, co-workers, relatives, fellow students, and so on. We are starting a new series on our podcast, Conversations with Non-Poles Who Are Married to Poles or Have Polish Partners. So my name is uh, Johannes. I am uh, an Austrian and German born and raised. I immigrated to uh, Canada six years ago and I'm married to Marta, who was born in Koszalin, Poland, and we married 12 and a half years ago. How did you meet? So Marta came as an au pair to my sister's family when she was 18. And at one of the family holidays, uh, I, I visited my sister. Yeah, it was like love, love on the first sight. Right, right after she, she, she was done with her au pair time, she moved to Vienna, where I lived at that point, and we, we moved together. And we got married very quickly, and it's like the perfect love story. So when you met her, were there any things that you found, something that was different from the society and the people that you come from? Oh, for sure. Very much so. First of all, a very different language and the language I had a really hard time to relate to. And I have to say, even after after more than 13 years now in total, my Polish is really is really not very good. So I understand a little bit, but, but I cannot really talk. It's a very difficult language. But beautiful. I, I really like the sound. However, she speaks German like I think most Germans wouldn't recognize her as a non-native speaker. Her German is flawless. Yeah, and, and culture and, and habits. Give me examples. For example, she grew up in a, in, a, in a tiny apartment with her grandmother, her sister and her mother. So I think like many Polish people, really in very narrow, small spaces. That was very much different to, to how I grew up, where there was lots of space. So you could see that it was really... A difficult thing for her to adjust, I guess. She was very respectful and very ex extremely tidy and everything. And and I think it's because if you if you live on on a very small space, you have to be you have to be very careful not to disturb the people you live with. When she came to Vienna, it was like she was really surprised how how diverse people were. When we traveled for the first time to Canada, which was uh, 12 years ago, so it, it was actually our honeymoon trip to Montreal. Uh, she was really surprised by how how diverse Canada is, and especially compared to Poland. And my impression was also when I traveled to Poland for the first time that I have never seen a place where everything is so uniform, very little diversity. And, and you talk about the ethnic diversity? Ethnic diversity, but also if you, for example, if you go to different apartments, it was very much the way they designed their space or the way they furnished their space was very much alike and the same kind of furniture. I explained it to myself, it's based on, on 50 years of communism, where actually one of the main goals was to make everything equal and the same. And that's actually, frankly speaking, something I didn't like. Like after a week, I really, I, I really had a strong desire to see something else and to have a change. Do you have the same impression when you visit Poland now or are you basing it on the time when you guys met? I have to say the last time I visited Poland was eight years ago. I was really surprised how people recognized me when I came the first time to Poland immediately as someone who's not Polish before I opened my mouth because just my hairstyle was different. I, 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 I was dressed differently. I was really surprised how, how, how obvious I was a foreigner. I don't want to sound too negative. I always, I, I really enjoyed traveling to Poland and 
I was always stunned by by how by the by by hospitality in general. And I also have to say I was a little bit concerned as a, as a German uh, to when I was introduced to my new Polish family. I was a little bit concerned that that history and that it might play a role, and that as a German I might be kind of not the most popular from the beginning. And I was really surprised that that really doesn't doesn't matter anymore. And I was I was really positively surprised that there were no bad feelings because of Polish and German history. And I wouldn't be surprised if there would be some resentments from from the Polish side, you know. Generally, when you think about Polish people, what are the things that are definitely different from the from your German nation or society? Something that strikes you right away, something that's really immediately yeah. noticeable to you. One one thing would be that Polish people, in my opinion, are very proud, um, especially towards their heritage and and history. Fairly conservative, especially to to the way I grew up. So, uh, especially in regards to the church, so I was really surprised to to see a nation in in the center of Europe where the church plays such an important role. I was I, I thought it's it would be just Ireland probably, but surprisingly, I, get, I I wouldn't be surprised if Poland is more Catholic than even Ireland. Yeah, and also the the sexual stereotypes. So that is, as a man, you have to fulfill a certain a certain image. For example, I I don't really like drinking alcohol. I really don't like vodka. I am the kind of man I like to show my op- my feelings quite quite openly. I was surprised how the reaction was towards that sometimes. So that's like what? And you're, not a, you're not a real man. I found that really really strange. But on the other hand, I, I think there can be so much can be explained by history. I think especially Poland really has a very very tough his, his, history between Germany and Russia and Austria and that's, for example, how I explain the, 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 the pride. Because for, for such a long time, Poland wasn't even existing and kind of suppressed. And I can understand. And, of course, as a German, you are not, you learn not to show any pride. Or most people don't feel any pride or patriotic feelings towards their, their heritage, based on history again. In your world of the two of you, anything that uh, is so Polish in your wife that sometimes makes you laugh or it's amusing... Small little things, for example, when, when Magda is talking to her family on the phone uh, in Poland, and I have always the impression they are kind of fighting or complaining about something. <laughs> and it's actually just the, the sound of the language in this, in this particular moment. And then I ask her, is everything fine? What, what happened? And she said, no, no, it's fine. Everything is good. And to me, it, it, it sounds like, <laughs> I don't know, something is, is terribly wrong. I find it sometimes very, very funny how... When she's talking about people and she, and she mentions names, and I have no idea what she's talking about because there are, there are so many people named uh, like Magda, Ola, Kaja, Kasha. I really have a hard time to 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 distinguish Kasha and Kaja. I really have to ask, okay, is it Kaja your your friend from school, or is it is it your your cousin? Because to me, it all sounds the same. I think especially for female names. I'm sure every Polish family knows as a Magda or a Kasia or Karolina or and food, of course. So um, even though Magda, I, I think she's not very typical Polish anymore. Whatever that would be, but uh, in regards to Polish food, she is very. It's very important, and her, her meatballs and mashed potatoes, and then um, this 
less cucumber salads. Miseria. Name. Miseria. Miseria, yeah. And I really see how, how that immediately connects her to her childhood and how important that is. Do you agree? You can share your opinions and comments on our website, mypolcast.com. Under Stories, you will find a page devoted to the series called Non-Poles About Poles. Leave your comments there. We will be quoting them on podcast from time to time. The Polish alphabet is based on the Latin alphabet, but includes certain letters that have funny signs attached to the normal-looking letters. That's why many English speakers, when they see a printed Polish text, are amazed how weird it looks, with so many extra elements attached to otherwise familiar letters. They are not just a decoration. They are called diacritics, and there are four kinds of them. First is the acute accent like we have in French, where it's called accent aigu, and appears only over letter E. We see it in French words used in English, for example, pâté, fiancé, café, résumé. In Polish, the acute accent doesn't appear over letter E, but over five other letters, C, N, O, S, and Z, or as we say it in the States, Z, producing distinct sounds, four of which do not exist in English, Ch, Ñ, Sh, and j. O, with the acute accent, is pronounced as u. The overdot, always over letter z. As a result, we have a sound pronounced z, like in some English words derived from French. For example, gendarme, genre. The third one is the tail, which is added to two vowel letters, a and e, and result in two nasal sounds that do not exist in English, on and un familiar to French speakers, for example, in words bon temps or lundi. And finally, the stroke, which crosses the letter L, the same sound we get in English every time we have W in spelling, which is W. So, as you see, these funny diacritics are crucial to the Polish language and make the number of letters in the alphabet bigger than in English. There are 32 letters in the Polish alphabet, while in English there are only 26. The good thing is, however, that the orthography in Polish is mostly phonetic, which means that the written letters correspond in a consistent manner to the sounds of spoken Polish. So knowing the rules, you can read a Polish text aloud without understanding it, unlike in English, where the relationship between spelling and pronunciation is far from regular. What is really hard for English speakers learning Polish is its pronunciation. Part of the difficulty is pronouncing words that do not exist in English, such as t, ch, or sh. But this is only the tip of the iceberg. The real problem are words containing combinations of consonants plus sounds that do not exist in English, such as wstrząśnięcie. Good luck! Most of us nowadays are really interested in making our life healthier. We try to modify our lifestyle by incorporating physical activity and we watch what we eat. A lot of the changes that we feel we need to make are quite expensive. Organic foods, fitness clubs, spas, etc. all come with a sizable bill. 
But it turns out that we can get the best of the best for free. And what's more, it's all around us. On our podcast, you have already met Anna Szynicka, that amazing Canadian of Polish origin, who cycled across Canada in 2015. A homeopath running a very successful holistic care center in Toronto, Anna treated this trip as an opportunity to test, photograph and describe dozens of edible plants, which she ate while cycling from the Pacific to the Atlantic. The result of her many years of interest in this issue and her experience during that unforgettable trip is her recently published book, Wild and Edible Plants of Canada. What you will hear in our interview with her can change your life. Anya, when you were cycling across Canada, one of the amazing things that you brought back from that trip, apart, of course, from many impressions, was incredible knowledge about the diversity of plants that grow in Canada and especially plants that can be eaten. This seems to be your big thing now because you've just uh, published a book. Many people just uh, underestimate uh, the power of plants. Wild plants are literally superfoods. We look at them as weeds, but they carry so much nutrients. We grow vegetables these days in a soil that is completely spoiled. It doesn't have much minerals or nutrients. We don't deliver any kind of building blocks to our body. There is a study done. One carrot in 1950s had more vitamin A and nutrients than 10 carrots found in 2015. Wild plants, they grow in uncultivated soil. The leaves fall on the ground, there's ashes. The soil ultra-rich in nutrients. They say one wild raspberry has more vitamins than entire pint of raspberries bought in a store. In those books, I teach people about sustainability. Those plants grow around, they're free. You they're easy to identify, and they're literally more nutritious than the foods that you can actually buy in your regular grocery store. We have uh, lamb squatters, which is uh, wild spinach, a very high source of protein. We have purslane, which is super high in omega-3s. We have dandelion, which is a great source of vitamin A, B, K, B-complex, iron, Stinging nettle is growing all over High Park. It's, it's like a weed, garlic mustard, super source of vitamin K and A. Yes, we have a lot of weeds that are literally a supplement. You know, you could use them as supplements in your salads, in your shakes, in your smoothies, in your teas. So I understand that the book, which is called Wild Edible Plants of Canada, as seen on my cycling trip across my country, provides us with exact pictures so that we, can, we know what to, what to pick. Yes, it has very good pictures. It has a description of the plant. It has a little anecdote where I found it and how I found it because I was incorporating those foods in my diet. So the book covers over 55 plants that I was eating during my cycling trip. A lot of them are berries, a lot of them are green foods, and some roots as well. There is also medicinal aspect, what kind of vitamins are found in each uh, plant, what, uh, what medicinal uses it has. Maybe it's good for headaches, maybe it's good for abdominal cramps. So that's also added to the book and how to prepare it so people don't feel lost. Whether you make a sauce, whether you make a spice, whether you add it to your lasagna or put it on top of pizza, whether you can add that to your smoothie, it's all there. The book that I am working on right now is on wild and edible mushrooms. People have been asking me for years to take them on forays, take them foraging. 
And it's not so easy to organize a forge because, you know, the mushrooms have a specific time. Like right now is the season to, go, to get the honey mushrooms. Do you go in one week from now to the same forest and you will not find mushrooms? So what I decided to do is put a book together. Anyone can identify the 30 edible mushrooms that grow in Ontario and Canada. You said all these good things about mushrooms, but of course we all know, coming from a society and a country where mushroom picking was, you know, a tradition and everybody was mushroom picking, and still, despite the tradition, there have always been cases of people dying of mushroom poisoning. So mushrooms are great, but they're not that fully uh, safe. How do you make sure that you are not afraid that somebody will just pick something that will cause problems? Well, that's why it takes time to learn about mushrooms. It's not something that you just go and pick it and follow a guidebook. I have about seven guidebooks. Uh, because in Poland, we, we, yes, we, we harvested mushrooms, but there were maybe like five types. We ate chanterelle, swillus, which is mashlaki. We ate uh, opienki, honey mushrooms, bolets, and, and turch, which is uh, gonski. That's, that's pretty much like that's the variety of mushrooms we would eat in Poland. When I came here and I walked the forest, I found there's hundreds of mushrooms growing that we don't even see in Poland. And a lot of them are edible. So when I got the edible uh, guidebooks, you know, it's only one picture per mushroom. So it's, it takes time, you know, to actually identify, is this really the mushroom? Is this the one that is safe for me? So I got seven guidebooks. Now, you know, I look at it, different books and different angles, different types. Some of the mushroom books, they have it when the mushroom is a baby. Some of the mushroom books have it, have a picture when the mushroom is already overgrown and it's an old one or it's, the lighting is bad. So by seeing the same mushroom in various guidebooks, you, you see the consistency, and you also see the, the the mushroom with you know with your own eyes. You 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 test it, you cut it. That's how they say: is this the stem? Is the stem blue? Is the stem this and that? So once you get confident, you get to try a mushroom, and you have to be confident. You have to you know trust that this is the right one because. Yeah, it's easy to make a mistake. The good thing is most mushrooms, they are not necessarily going to make you die. You know, there's only a few mushrooms that are highly poisonous. And when I mean poisonous, meaning they're going to give you vomit and diarrhea and you're going to get sick for a few days. You're not going to necessarily die from them. There are only a few mushrooms that are deadly. And these are the ones that sometimes it's best to familiarize yourself which ones are the deadly ones because there may be five or ten of them right, where most of the mushrooms are edible and some of them are mildly toxic. So then all of a sudden the ratio changes, which ones are edible. And that's why I'm not a big fan of picking white mushrooms because the white mushrooms are the most tricky to identify and the hardest actually because they're so similar, the smell is similar, and the deadly cup is, the, you know, the deadly angel is the one that is going to, you know, it's a deadly angel. It's going to make you die if you uh, eat it. So you have to be cautious. And it takes time. It takes years to develop this sense of like, okay, I know this is the honey mushroom. I'm 100%. I've seen this mushroom in a baby form. I've seen it when it's, you know, grown, and I see it when it's an adult and when it's decaying. I know this mushroom in every single form, and you can, 
I can smell it, I can taste it, I know exactly, I'll never make a mistake. I'm including a lot more pictures, so there'll be like three or four pictures per mushroom. There's going to be a good description. There's also going to be a season. When is the best season and what forest it grows to? It's going to say, you know, what's, how you can prepare it. Because mushrooms grow all year round, right? Like from basically early spring till late November. And there are a lot of mushrooms that grow in winter, like birch, polypore, chaga, turkey tail. These are medicinal mushrooms that can be also harvested in wintertime. So they, they grow all year round. And it's good to know that, okay, spring, these are the mushrooms I'm looking for. This is the best time to collect these types of mushrooms. And then summer, okay, these are the ones that, you know, are found in summer. These are the ones found in fall, early fall, late fall. And come with me on forays or become my apprentice. So when I'm taking apprenticeship, I'm taking people who will be willing to go with me on many forays watch me, and I will go through their basket with their mushrooms and see what they picked and uh, help them identify the mushrooms and at least learn one mushroom or two mushroom types a year. And then if you keep doing that on a yearly basis, in a few years, you know a good chunk of, you know, of mushrooms that you feel confident and comfortable going and, and, and picking yourself without any assistance. And I think that's a great skill. So, so to summarize, we, we really are not using at all what's around us, what's free and what's good. We just don't know and we just don't care. We should start, right? Because that can change our way of, of eating. Well, exactly. You know, and thank you for saying that. We have abundance of food growing around us. Just like we look at plants, 90% of plants are edible. And it's really good to eat Plants that are in season, that are local, that are organic, growing on good soil. Same as with mushrooms. Mushrooms are a great source of protein. A lot of them are um, high in vitamin B. They also uh, have carry a lot of medicinal aspects for cancer or for boosting your immunity, even as painkillers. So we have access to it. And yeah, it is free food. It is way better for you that you could get it in a regular store. It's seasonal, it's local, and it's very nutritious, so it doesn't get better than this. To learn more about Anna's book, her plant walks, and more about her work, please visit our website at mypodcast.com. In the last episode, we played this sound, wondering if you can guess what it is, and where in Poland you can hear it. What you've just heard is the sound of the Warsaw subway, called Metro, one of the longest-run construction projects in Warsaw. Metro officially opened in April of 1995, but the first plans to build an underground rail system in Warsaw date as far back as 1918, when the idea was first floated after Warsaw regained its status as Poland's capital. The preliminary boring work was initiated in 1925, with the construction expected to start in the late 1920s. But the Great Depression buried those plans as Poland and the world were gripped by the economic crisis. In 1934, 
With the election of the new mayor of Warsaw, Stefan Starzyński, work was to resume by the late 1930s, with the first of the two lines scheduled to launch in the mid-1940s. The work finally started in 1938, but World War II brought an end to this ambitious undertaking. The short tunnels made in 1938 today serve as a wine cellar. In the 1950s, during the Cold War, Soviet strategic plans required that a secure transport link across the Vistula River be built. One of the ways to achieve this was to create a deep metro system in Warsaw, up to 150 feet or 46 meters beneath the ground. The construction started almost simultaneously at 17 different points on both sides of the river. By 1953, only 771 meters, which is about 843 yards, of the tunnels had been built. After the death of Joseph Stalin, all work was halted, allegedly due to technical difficulties. Finally, in 1994, the program was approved by the government and the first tunnels were built. The first line with 11 stops didn't open until 1995. As of today, there are two lines with 28 stops with work progressing on 27 more. One thing is certain. It took forever, but the Warsaw subway, its metro, is beautiful, very modern, and makes moving around the city so much easier. After presenting 29 interesting sounds from Poland, we will have a small audio surprise in our next episode. You've been listening to the 29th episode of Polcast. Polcast is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For full-length interviews, visuals, and a lot of additional information, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. We are always curious about your reactions, comments, and suggestions, also ideas for new stories. Please share them on our website, mypolcast.com. And we leave you with Polish traditional jazz. (laughs) 